Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Secret Records. We're, uh, this week, we are reviewing the new Hulu show, Mrs. America. I'm Brent Wingate. I'm Kaylin Batia. And this week, we've got a special guest and friend of the show, who's listened to it many times, I'm sure, Sandy Coburn. Hi, Sandy. Hello. Um, Sandy didn't have anything to plug other than that she's awesome. Um, did, nothing. I mean, it's true. I'm awesome. Yeah, okay. So we can, we can go with I that. I just wanted to make sure I had my facts straight. I'll just say uh, I know music pretty well, and Sandy's uh, knowledge of music scares me. <laughs> like, it's unbelievable. We, uh, uh, we do a biweekly music trivia uh, thing with Songbird, and... Um, we end up usually like between the two of us, we always end up getting the answer, but like Sandy always gets it like a split second before I do. Um, so just her knowledge of music is like absolutely phenomenal. So I'll just say that. Do you look down on Kalen for his uh, lesser knowledge? I don't know that he has lesser knowledge. Um, I feel like we are texting at the exact same time and it's a question of like whose internet's working that day. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> My Wi-Fi is maybe a little bit slower, uh, but that's, but like better your knowledge at, is amazing. Better at music and more humble than you. So perfect. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, obviously there's a reason why she's on this podcast. Uh, let's get into it. Yeah. Mrs. America is a nine episode miniseries on FX for Hulu. It tells a story of the struggle to enact the Equal Rights Amendment after it's passed by Congress in 1972. The show recounts the struggle made by a bipartisan coalition of elected officials and activists to enact it through the state legislatures and how the opposition led by Phyllis Schlafly was able to outmaneuver them. The series culminates with the election of Ronald Reagan, which was seen as the end of a progressive era started by FDR 48 years earlier. Um, I want to start out with a question. Uh, it's how we normally start our podcast. And the question is, will John Slatterly always play the role of a mid late century bad father who's sexist and hyper masculine? <laughs> He's a bit typecast. Yes. But uh, yeah, yes. The answer is yes. Mad Men is Roger Sterling. Uh, the Marvel movies is Howard Stark, and then uh, Fred Schlafly in Mrs. America. He oh, yeah. was also like a weird uh, Trumpy person on Thirty Rock. Yes, he was. He was True. Like, yeah. Yes, he. Way. Yes, he was. He was also in a short-lived show on the WB called Jack and Bobby that came out in the mid two thousands. I think he also made an appearance. He made an appearance in Arrested Development as a rich, wacky doctor. Uh, so I guess he's not universally typecast, but man, has he gotten some of the similar roles. And he was on Sex and the City, where he played a guy running for a controller that like dated uh, Carrie Bradshaw for like a hot second. That was the first time I ever saw him. So he never he's never a poor person. No. Um, <laughs> no. So the normal questions we ask are, why is this show the best? And uh, why is this show the worst? Um, Kaylin, why don't I start with you? Why is this show the best? Actually, I wanted you to start with Sandy. Oh, uh, Sandy? Okay, well, I mean, I'll, I'll have an opinion on why it's the best, but it's also going to be a part of why it's the worst. But, like, I thought that the cast was phenomenal. Like, they really got a ton of great actors to play these roles, so I thought that that was, like, really, really amazing. Um, I think it's, you know, good to, you know, be spotlighting, you know, this movement that doesn't necessarily always get a lot of uh facts behind it um but it was the worst also because like the strongest actresses like the actress of like a generation is on the conservative side and as a liberal like i want to see like the strongest actors on the liberal side <laughs> and uh, even though the liberal actors were really great like they were much more character actors so it was it was really well cast, but at the same time, it was a, a little bit of a uh, having Kate Blanchett in that role felt like you were kind of predisposed to root for Phyllis Schlafly. Um, so there was that. Um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely get that. Um, but I would wonder, would she be as good of a villain if she was not Kate Blanchett? Like, would you get as good of a if you had a lesser actress? Would she stand up in that kind of stature? Uh, as like, oh, she is something to be reckoned with. Uh, you know, I'm going to like side with Sandy a little bit because we like to see like these like amazing actors play anti-heroes or villains, usually in these fictitious roles like 
James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano, uh, John Hamm as Don Draper, uh, Brian Cranston as Walter White. Yeah. Uh, the the difference is well, one, I'm glad it's you know a woman antihero slash villain, actual villain. But this is a real life person who did a lot of damage to uh, the feminist movement, to a lot of like liberal causes, and it's a little bit harder to watch knowing uh, like what the uh, effects were of her of her efforts and some of which she didn't actually believe in you know so like that's that makes it even worse right and I, I guess that the reason that I I consider that a critical point is um, and I don't remember who did this but a few years ago there were there was a study that was done and it was trying to figure out if the Stephen Colbert show if you guys remember that mm-hmm. um, if that show um, was actually swaying people to be more democratic by doing this you know, we're, we've got somebody who, like, every day is, is making fun of George Bush. And uh, what they found was is that conservatives watched the show completely different than liberals did. Liberals saw it as, you know, being... Satire. You know, yeah, satire. And conservatives thought, yeah, this guy's actually, like, telling it like it is. So that's where I... I I, I don't know. That's one of those things where I've, I've got a lens on things now because... Uh, of knowing that where I'm always kind of trying to check, am I just viewing things through my liberal bubble? Um, Kaylin, what do you think? Best, worst? So um, I'll start with the best. Um, I think the best is I like that there was a show telling this story, uh, this story of a movement that was trying to enact something that was absolutely necessary to try to get... um, uh, the disparities between the genders, you know, like get some like equity and equality there. The thing I liked about it even more is the complacency that we ended up seeing because the majority supported it. Um, you know, if you see early on in the show, uh, it's a bipartisan uh, coalition, as you mentioned in the, in your synopsis, Brent. There are Democrats and Republicans, um, you know, uh, when the show starts, Nixon is president, and this is like you know just on the verge of Watergate, and like he's supportive of the ERA. Uh, in fact, the only time you see um, the people who are against the ERA are people like Senator Goldwater, who uh, was you know kind of an outlier uh, even after he ran for president and remained in the Senate and was just sort of seen as like a curmudgeon uh, and like was just you know so. Um, uh, he believed in his view so much that he couldn't even see the greater good of what the ERA could do. Uh, I liked uh, that, um, you know, uh, we got to see a complacency of the majority of a liberal majority getting outmaneuvered by a conservative minority. Cause I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. And uh, I've mentioned this on the podcast before in my day to day life. I, my day to day life, I, I work in politics. Uh, I do a lot of election work. I do a lot of campaign work, and one of the things I do when I uh, uh, train people on campaigns is just because you think you're in the right doesn't mean you're going to win. Uh, yeah. Just because you're right. a side of good. Like, everybody needs to stop watching The West Wing. Everybody needs to stop watching all these good government shows. And, like, it really is about power and, like, figuring out how power works. And, you know, I appreciated uh, the show uh, uh, recounted how um, Phyllis Shafley and uh, what ended up becoming the Eagle Forum used their power to get something or to stop something rather uh, as, as horrible as it was to watch, you knew what the outcome was. It's like, there are lessons to be learned here. And like, we, like I say, this as a progressive, like there are lessons that we have to take uh, moving forward, especially after this past week uh, with uh, the murder of George Floyd um, as, uh, and all the various um, uh, uh, protests that we've seen around the country, especially here in, in DC, since we're all DC residents. So that's my best. Uh, what about your worst? Um, that's a kind of a tougher question for me. I, I think there are times when the show wanted to dramatize certain elements of um, the movement, and it, it made it feel very biopicy, which it, it's just kind of like I think a flaw of biopics in general. And I know this is like a like uh, this isn't a bio movie. This is like a mini series, so it's like extended over like you know seven and a half hours, give or take. Sure. Um, but um, clearly, you've got a lot of real life people, and then you have some people who have been made up to like kind of embellish the story. There's uh, and some of those characters are very I- intriguing to watch, including uh, the woman who plays 
uh, Shafley's friend and the one who convinces her the ERA is Al- Alice McRae. Is Alice McRae, thank played you. Played by Sarah Paulson. And Sarah Paulson's a phenomenal actress. Yeah. Um, you know, but like devoting an entire episode to her, I know a lot of people really loved it when you get to like episode, I think seven or eight. Yeah. Uh, when they go to Houston, but like focusing on her rather than focusing on some of the real life. Um, proponents of the ERA, I, th- I felt like that was a detraction of not focusing more on someone like Gloria Steinem or Shirley Chisholm, even though the episodes were devoted to them to a certain degree. But even when they were apo- uh, uh, episodes devoted to them, there was like a l- more more on like someone like Phil Schlafly and her uh, and her and her cohorts. Um, I just think um, this is just sometimes like it's just a detraction of like biopics. So, I mean, so this is actually one of the reasons why I think it's the best um, because so many shows can easily fall into being near documentaries or too adherent of a biopic. And I think the fundamental problem with that in a TV show is that life never matches the story structure that makes stories interesting. And I think this show did a very good job of balancing the kind of, this is historical but also we're fictionalizing elements of it. So making each episode named after the character that they want you to focus on most, I think just from a viewer standpoint, you end up thinking, well, why is this show called Betty? Why is this show called Gloria? What am I gaining about this character? So the, the Alice episode or Houston, I believe is the episode is what the episode's called. Yeah. Was one of my favorites because it, it does take someone who is who loves Phyllis Schlafly and wonders how is it, how might it be possible for someone to change their mind. It's a little bit fantastical because it basically you know she's kind of got this mental conversion over the course of a night, but um, I think it's a very nice journey into darkness. I again I think yes from a from a storytelling standpoint I don't disagree with that, but this is about recounting the struggle for the ERA. And why uh, the right was able to maneuver, outmaneuver the left from my perspective. Maybe that's the way I viewed it. Um, having this sort of character journey of a fictitious character just seemed um, not a cop out necessarily, but it just seemed like it was trying to add on some, uh, a, like a, a dramatic device on something that, on a show that didn't need it. Uh, and I, I just didn't, uh, I just didn't buy her character journey. She was the one that introduced to, to Phyllis. Why the ERA was so bad. Oh, you bring that up all the time. That's old history. I mean, is it possible <laughs> that, you know, Phyllis Schlafly had in her will that if she was ever depicted in a movie that she had to at least be pretended to have friends? I mean, I'm sure. I'm if, sure there if, were people... if I could put it in my will that Kate Blanchett plays me, oh, I would absolutely do that in a heartbeat. Uh, Kate Blanchett <laughs> could do any of us, yeah. actually. I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Any of us, all of us, like in the same setting. Absolutely. It's a one-woman show, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I like I again. It, Houston was a great episode, like of a show of a different show in in some ways. I, I feel uh, one. I didn't believe her journey, and two. I just think it took away. It took away from some of the uh, some of the um, other players that I really wanted to see. And yes, the show did have like the episodes named after the various folks. Like you, you had Phyllis. Yep. You know, you had Gloria. But every time it got past Phyllis, uh, it would spend maybe half the time with the folks who were part of the ERA coalition. And then like it would revert back to Phyllis and her cohorts because it's sometimes more interesting to watch the villain. It just is. Like when we when we watch uh, any kind of televised or uh, or film, you know, um, uh, treatment of, of, of anything. So it. I felt it was like a slight disservice uh, by doing that. But that's just my perspective. Do you have any thoughts on that? More. I mean, I I think that I, I think it was about the right mix. Like I I actually probably thought that the idea that they would actually find somebody in Felicia Lafley's real life that would be outspoken enough to you know participate in this biopic or well not biopic but participate in this uh, miniseries was probably unrealistic. Um, you know, do they she, they don't have to get the do they have to get the rights for like. Like if Alice McRae was What's a real, real person, person, would they have to get the rights to tell the story? I don't know if they do. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, so I, I can't really. I think st- it depends on how much she's in the public eye. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if there's like a whole bunch of footage of her, 
being poor, you know, of, of her next to oh, that's an events, interesting point, I'm yeah. pretty sure that you have some public rights. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's talk about let's get into some of these characters. Yeah. Um, so I think from the the stop ERA, the kind of big three characters um, are Phyllis Schlafly, uh, Alice McRae, and then Rosemary Thompson, who's mm-hmm. played by Melanie Linsky. And she is the kind of Phyllis Schlafly wannabe. She's she's the acolyte. Yeah, yeah. she is very she's ambitious. Uh, she tries to be condescending, but she lacks a lot of tact. And then on the ERA side, we have uh, Gloria Steinem, played by Rose Byrne, Betty Friedan, played by Tracy Ullman, Bella Abzug, played by character actress Margot Martindale, yes. Shirley Chisholm, played by Uzo Aduba. Is that the right way to pronounce it? Yeah. Um, Jill Rickelhouse played by Elizabeth Banks. And then we also had Florence uh, Kennedy, played by Niecy Nash, and uh, Margaret Sloan, played by Bria Simone Henderson. Um, what did you make of the relationships these characters had with each other? Were there any that kind of stuck out to you as being uh, particularly remarkable or not, or maybe not as well done as you would have liked? Um, well, I would say that, like, of the characters, I really felt like Bella stood out a lot. Um, I was not all that familiar with, like, her backstory, so I have no idea how much of this was improvised. But this kind of idea that she really, like, unlike some of the other characters, she didn't want to be the face and the voice of the movement, but she wanted to be all of the ideas and all of the strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, here, here again, of course, she's played by a phenomenal character actress. So, um, that just really brought things out. I also thought that, that Uzo just completely like melted into the Shirley Chisholm role. She was phenomenal. Unrecognizable. I mean, I, somebody had to tell me that she was crazy eyes from Orange is the New Black. I like, I was like, oh, that is her. Cause she completely like was Congresswoman Chisholm. Like she was amazing. I think the Bella Abzug was probably one of the most surprised. I mean, obviously, Margot Martindale is a treasure. But uh, as far as names I knew, Gloria Steinem I knew, Shirley Chisholm, Betty Friedan. Uh, and But Bella was one I had ne- I'd never heard of her. Um, I do like how, how they kind of made her this bullish pragmatist. Yes. That there's a kind of theme for the characters that so many of them have these strong personalities that conflict with each other a lot. And that's born out of the fact that they are paving ground in society, that they have to be, they have to don personalities where they can't back down, where they can't him and haw. And for their personal lives, it basically means that they, a lot of people have to recognize and accept them as quote unquote, difficult people. I, I agree with you on the the sort of the pragmatist role because she had been, you know, she was a congresswoman and she sort of grew up in the all boys club. And she's like, I know how to maneuver through this to get what I want. Whereas somebody like Gloria Steinem is more of an idealist, you know, Betty Friedan in her own way is an idealist. And even though uh, Shirley Chisholm is an elected official and runs for president in 1972, she's an idealist in her own self because she is the first black congresswoman ever. And, um, you know, uh, I really liked seeing the friction of, of these, these characters, even seeing Betty Friedan, who, um, you know, it's weird to say this during Pride Month of, of not being an, an intersectional, intersectionalist yeah. in, in the 70s, where she's like, lesbians are not part of this movement. I don't believe in this. Like, uh, and they had to fight to try to get that. She eventually saw the light, which is great, but uh, at least in the show. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, I appreciated that they showed the nuance within the, this feminist movement, uh, sec- uh they were second wave feminists at yeah. this point. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I really liked that. And I really liked also Elizabeth Banks playing, uh, Jill Ruckelhaus as yes. like the Republican who was part of this coalition, but she's like the sort of Rockefeller Republican. Yes, also on 30 yeah. Rock. <laughs> yes, yes. Also on 30 Rock playing. As a conservative uh, anchor. Elizabeth Banks <laughs> is a treasure. I, f- I, I love her. I think she's so, so talented and she's such a, such a wonderful actress. Uh, but I liked that we got to see like the fissure between the moderate Republicans and conservative Republicans, because, you know, if you watch the show now, um, you know, if you unless you know history or are really into politics, uh, you may not remember or know of a time when there were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. 
And we've had this sort of great sorting out over the last 40, 50 years where, you know, you don't really see, like, it's hard to even find a moderate Republican these days. You still see some moderate Democrats because the the party tent is a little bit more broad than the Republicans. But uh, uh, seeing that and then seeing, like, her, um, uh, seeing her despair when the Republicans start adopting a more pro-life stance, because she is such a pro-choice advocate. She's such a staunch ERA advocate. And just seeing the party that she grew up in just sort of fail her, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see that. Yeah, one of, the, one of my favorite scenes in the show was definitely the part where um, she meets Phyllis for the first time, where Elizabeth Banks does. In the bar. Yeah, and she's so charming. And, you know, it feels like she is just going to completely flip Phyllis Schlafly her direction. Um, and then, yeah, it just, Phyllis's stubbornness gets in the way and it just ends up uh, being a, a fuck you moment. Um, I de- that I think that some of the best scenes were scenes where pe- two characters were at a bar uh, throughout the show because um, you just wanted to have a drink with them. Yeah, well, there's there's something communal about it yeah. that you feel like, oh, I could actually come to the table with this person, and then there's always some inflection point where there's too much friction. I actually liked um, adding to that. I liked the scenes whenever there was a debate between two characters because in sort of traditional TV or movies, I call it the Aaron Sorkin effect. It's the the good side will prevail anytime there's a debate. And then you see the debate between Phyllis Schlafly and Betty Friedan uh, when um, she's at, I think, Columbia or NYU, or I can't remember which university. Um, and at, you can see Betty Friedan like, getting the best initially of over Phyllis Schlafly. Yes. And then Phyllis Schlafly goes for the jugular and goes personal because she and her husband, played by John Slattery, who we talked about, say you know he kind of coached her into like it's like you got to punch below the belt sometimes and when she goes for betty like oh you know you're just bitter because your husband of 20 years left you for a younger woman and you're alone and you're drying up and you will always be you know by yourself now and like just she's like you're a witch and i want to burn you at the stake Yeah. yeah and she like schlafly I love that they played her that viciously and that intelligently because, like, this is who she was. She was a monster and a very intelligent monster. Uh, uh, so let's dig into Phyllis a little bit more because yeah. I know there's a there's a part of Phyllis that's you know because Kate Blanchett is such a charismatic actor uh, or yeah actress whatever that she just commands every scene. She makes this character really understandable and a thought I just kept having in my head was I love the character I hate the person and maybe it's because I like television and movies so much that I can maybe divorce myself from the real consequences this person did but I thought of the there's that movie um, that Zac Efron was in where he played Ted Bundy and it was like extremely wicked supremely evil Mm. and devious um, and one of the problems, one of the criticisms of the movie is it's this really handsome guy who is playing Ted Bundy, who murdered a bunch of people and they don't show you really much of the violence that he commits at all. There's very little of it. And a lot of people really hated that because they saw that as this character is being portrayed in a positive way. And because it's like a really attractive actor, you end up liking them more the interpretation I got from it was you as a viewer of like a real life situation would see that person and you'd think, Oh, he's handsome. And then someone would describe his crimes, but you'd never seen him do that. So you have to weigh against your, you have to weigh your own rationality against your, your heart's desire to see that person as being better because they're more attractive. And I think Phyllis has that, that Kate Blanchett as Phyllis has that same characteristic. We see how smart she is. We see how cunning she is, how resourceful and creative. But she's also this um, manipulative, um, dismissive monster. And I, I think that the show does an appropriate amount to show how she is a wicked person. And it, it, she doesn't come out shining like I think a lot of critics have said she does. And I think maybe you guys think. What do you think of that? 
Well, that's a, a little bit of, uh, again, I'm trying to figure out like where the liberal bubble plays into all of this. Like if I, you know, didn't have my particular stance, would I view um, this entire miniseries the exact same way that I do as a liberal? Because I think that the thing that was fascinating about how it was written and how things were set up is uh, there's definitely a character arc to Phyllis Schlafly in the series that I don't know existed in real life. Um you know, where she's starting this movement that she doesn't actually believe in because mm -hmm. she really just wants somebody to pay attention to her uh, talk about foreign policy. And she sees this as like a gateway. And she kind of starts off sympathetic. You know, she starts off as somebody who's like very kind to her friends and, um, you know, to, I guess, her family. They didn't really go into her family in the beginning. Um, but then she just ends up gradually, you know, kind of stabbing each and every one of them in the back. Um, and, and it just kind of crescendos in, um, you know, really like her definitely seeming like a monster. I mean, by the end, I, I would hope that no one could sympathize with her, that she, she just comes off as, as awful. Um, do you feel like when you were watching it? By the end, you had a lot of the feelings you had about being uncomfortable watching Kate Blanchett felt uh, okay. You know, that kind of final scene where she's sitting uh, by herself peeling apples. Did you feel better at that moment that, you know, maybe the show, you know, put her in her place or is, was that lingering all throughout? I felt like that to a degree put her in her place, but I mean, in, in real life, Eagle forum, existed until trump's election right maybe it still actually does uh it does but it's not the same force as, as it once was but um you know i don't feel bad for that situation i felt um in the same way that she as sandy said like she sort of um started working for a cause she didn't necessarily believe in because she wanted to advance her own cause on being having being more of a foreign policy hawk that she got, ended up getting caught up in the politics and the politics burned her because the, at the very end, when she gets the call from Reagan, you know, like he's congratulating her, he's thanking her, like couldn't have done it without you. But you know, I like, I looked at the polls, I need women. I got to think about 1984, you know? Um, and like, I can't, I can't risk this. And so he had to play the prag pragmatist role. And as a result, she got burned uh, when she thought she was going to get some kind of appointment into something like being, you know, the UN ambassador or, you know, secretary of state, whatever she wanted at the, at the time. Um, so I kind of felt, oh, this was very, um, uh, this was like very just desserts, you know, yeah. for her. So, so um, let's get into the politics then, because um, Phyllis does sell her soul to gain the world. Um, I think she... She, as a character, she alienates herself a lot. Um, what do you guys make of some of the the cunning maneuvers that are made, like the the coalition building? I think um, one. I think this is where we started seeing, and I'm, it was definitely uh, influenced by what's happening in today today's world. It's sort of a post fact era. Uh, where you know, she would go on like Phil Donahue and she would go, you know, up against these debates and she would just spout out lies, mis, mis, you know, uh, mistruths, just, you know, just, to, she made the fake audio clips. Yeah. Uh, all that kind of stuff just to like get her point across. And even after the interview, Donahue says to her, it's like, are you sure about your facts? And she's like, what does it matter? You know, like it, for her, it's all about winning. Yeah. Um, Rosemary has a similar line when Alice is caught up in Houston on the camera yeah. and with the question about, are you, uh, you know, the polls say that, uh, most women favor the ERA yeah. and Rosemary later chides her. Well, just say the polls are wrong. Just yeah. lie. Well, um, and then you mentioned co coalition building. I mean, there are a lot of other factors why this happened, but the moral majority coming together to be a real force in Republican politics and being the backbone of Republican politics, like for several decades uh, past this point, I think was absolutely fascinating to see. Um, you know, they make uh, uh, like uh, offhand comments of how, um, oh gosh, who is the uh, sort of the male preacher turned um, political activist? Phil? Phil? 
Not the, not the one played by. Uh, He's not in it. Uh, they just they just reference him. And uh, how, uh, how, Pat Robertson, not uh, Pat Robertson. Uh, Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell. Thank yeah. you. Uh, but same ilk as Pat Robertson about how Phyllis could teach him something. I kind of like laughed at that moment a little bit, but like, um, I mean, she knew how to uh, create a movement that would end up being the backbone of the modern Republican Party, and like from a political science and historian standpoint. Like, uh, it is absolutely fascinating to see that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that I, even though it was abhorrent to watch, it was like, I couldn't take my eyes away from it because I wanted to learn from it and figure out how she was able to do this and build power by tapping into, uh, everyone's anxiety. And we didn't talk about, um, I can't remember her name, but the very like fire and brimstone religious woman, the one who yes, was, like, the- kept talking about abortion and like, she would pluck the flower Yes. Uh, out uh, and I, I can't remember her name, um, but like she was one of the most frightening uh, people in the show because I grew up in Texas, Sandy. I knew you grew up in Missouri, and you, Brent, you grew up in Georgia. Yeah, we knew people like this yeah. uh, growing up, and so you know we saw them all over the South. And I mean, they're not just you know uh, confined to the South, obviously, but uh, but like I grew up with people like this. I grew up with people's parents like this, and. Like, I got very triggered when I saw her. Uh, I think she might have been from Texas or some other southern state. But, uh, my God, what a frightening, frightening character. Yeah, same. She definitely felt reminiscent of scary people that I've met in the Midwest. There's this kind of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre family, like, the hills have eyes type. Oh, this idiot is fucking dangerous yeah they are so deluded about the nature of reality um sandy were there any moments that kind of that political moments that you saw in the show that kind of resonated with you because i think there are a lot of them that tried to draw parallels to how we're experiencing reality now yeah i mean i definitely noticed that there were were several so i mean like the the false truths was definitely a big one um you know, this idea that Phyllis Schlafly, it was just stay on message, say whatever you need to say to stay on message and nothing else matters um, is definitely something that I see as a strategy today. But then on the opposite side, this idea of on the left, it being a party that's more inclusive versus a party that says, well, can we remove people from like who we're considering as important um, in order to... Um, win more voters yeah like so that was another theme that that we're definitely really grappling with today yeah i think for me one of the uh, the subtle ones that really um reminded me a lot of how politics today works was uh, betty friedan comes to the group at this barbecue saying she's found out that uh that uh, Phyllis Schlafly's organization takes uh, she's a she's a part of the member of the John Birch Society mm-hmm. and then suspects that she's probably getting funds from the KKK and everyone in the group recognizes well if we don't have any proof of that we can't say it and it reminds me a lot of the liberals today who still and I think they're right to do it want to be truthful and want to be right Betty recognizes that there's another game being played by the other side where they're not playing fair and they're making stuff up. Right. Yeah. Um, so one other, another political thing we should talk about is uh, the support for Shirley. I think they made her out to be a bit of a Bernie Sanders character that she's got uh, a solid group of people who still support her. She's got delegates and she is fighting to make a more uh, progressive platform than McGovern was trying to do and holding out longer than a lot of the moderates wanted her um, to do so. Right. What do you think of um, the way they portrayed her run? Uh, were there were there any reasons why you think maybe she's not a great Sanders parallel? Well, the irony is there for me is uh, when Sanders was ascendant, uh, I heard this from a lot of people I know that this is, uh, if he gets the nomination, he's McGovern 2.0, which I didn't really believe. 
because McGovern suffered one of the worst electoral defeats in modern, semi-modern politics over the last 50 years. Yeah. And so modern, uh, McGovern being the sort of like the establishment, you know, character is, is just kind of laughable now, uh, just be- because of, you know, the last 50 years. Um, I thought, um, I thought it was really interesting showing her because of the struggle between her and uh, with uh, Bella, specifically when Bella tells her, look, we have to beat Nixon. You can't win. You can't be the nominee. It's going to be McGovern. you got to get behind him. And it's sort of the, uh, and I'm, um, you know, uh, Sandy knows this and several, you know, people are, you know, I'm close to know this. Um, you know, it's sort of the blue no matter who yeah. sort of coalition. Which I, I do I believe. Blew, no matter who. Yeah, yeah, we know. We've seen we've seen all the pictures. We've seen your Instagram stories. Uh, but, um, but you know, there is clearly like it's making I think a uh, a commentary on what's happening right now of like we've got to coalesce behind whomever because who we have currently in the White House is so awful. Uh, that we got to get behind it. Like, I hope what happens on November 3rd this year isn't, uh, you know, uh, it isn't, um, uh, we ha- we don't have like a preview of it of what happened in 1972. I don't think we will, but uh, there is some potentially scary parallels there. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that the difference between, uh, there's a, definitely an attitude difference between Shirley and Bernie. Um, so while Shirley may represent the left, I think that, you know, she definitely thought that there was like a stronger support within the party, not necessarily from the grassroots, which I think is a little bit more of like where the Sanders campaign sits. Um, but she really was, you know, trying to do this in that, that West Wing way that Kaylin referenced where it was really i'm going to do this right i'm going to you know present the right ideas i'm going to you know approach everything in this very calm very logical very debate style um which is a a bit different from kind of the 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 anger and the passion that you hear in bernie sanders um yeah i think that her balance as a character was very interesting um like many of the others but you know there i think there's something fundamentally arrogant about saying i'm running for president of the united states you have to believe in yourself more than the average person does and so a criticism she got leveled at her was you know you're arrogant are you is this for black people or is this for shirley um or for women they said or for women yeah and i think it's like well both can be true like there is a part of her as a person that needs that in order to make her political success happen and also she made the point um sort of subtly that like mcgovern will sell you out and then you saw you saw that on the convention floor in 1972 when mcgovern's forces were trying to stop the uh putting abortion in the democratic plank you know they made a promise to gloria and to bella and others and then when they realized oh crap they could actually succeed uh, you saw all the men coming back to like reclaim their seats when they had originally given them up to the women. Yeah. That was a really heartbreaking moment, you know. And it's interesting, it's interesting to see like you know, I mean, this was you know fifty years ago, slightly less, like forty eight years ago, uh, and that's not that long a time ago that like you know the Democratic Party was like debating whether they should put like you know reproductive rights in their platform, and now it's just like, of course, it's in the platform. Yeah, you know. I mean, the other thing with, uh, you know, Shirley, and this is, of course, you know, looking at a movement that, you know, you weren't there for, is that the second wave feminist movement is just really, like, critiqued for the way that they've treated black women, particularly, throughout. Um, Just at every turn, you know, abandoning them and not sticking up for their rights or, or even being willing to see that they have a perspective that may be different than theirs. Right. Um, well, with that, why don't we move into some of the, the there are many themes in the show. Um, and I think what you were just saying really deals with the way some of the show, you know, tries to work through race politics. Um, and I thought um, one of my favorite first, I'm very glad that they made um, Shirley Chisholm's run an important part of the show because. There are you could very easily have excluded that and still have, you know, 
you still ha- would have a show, but I think it was very smart of them to include it and to try and figure out ways to get these characters to interact with each other and still keep it interesting. Um, but my, my second favorite part was Margaret Sloan, who was an editor at Ms. Magazine, and she brought up the issue of tokenism in the workplace, and she kept trying to find ways to... S- bring up that there are problems for uh, within being a black woman and being a black woman among other women in general. And being a black woman who is also a lesbian. Yes. On top of that. And the response that she was getting from a lot of her, you know, kind of woke white peers was defensiveness. Are we doing something wrong? Is there something wrong with us? At which makes it harder for her to make, the point she's trying to make when people get emotionally hurt by it. Yeah. Um, what did you think about the way the show kind of dealt with race? Was there anything that you thought they could have maybe done better? Um, well, I mean, I would have watched an entire series on just the Shirley Chisholm character. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. That, the fact that they only subtly brought up the um, investigation charges on her. Uh, the investigation on her for misusing campaign funds mm-hmm. and the uh, the surveillance that was going on on her. Those things are such fascinating history. And you're right. It could be its own show. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing with, with that one. Um, yeah, I mean, but, de- but definitely there was... Um, I was very glad that they brought out that there is a, a lot of tokenism that has been, you know, shown in this particular movement at that time i mean there's clearly like issues still happening right now mm-hmm. um but i i felt like they could have gone a bit further i felt like it was a little disappointing that those characters were seen less as the series went forward yeah there was that there was one scene where they had the um it was it was uh, florence uh i think it was at her house and she's hosting all of these black women yeah. and it kind of ends with her, you know, breaking up a fight between them talking about, you know, if you guys want to build a coalition, go build it. And you didn't get many scenes like that where there was more than uh, uh, one black person with a bunch of white people. Right. It's, it's sort of the, I call it the mad men effect. I, I know I'm <laughs> referencing other TV shows, but like, you know, mad men was a story of the tumultuous sixties, and they make references to the civil rights movement. And the only black characters they have on the show are the secretaries who become, you know, part of uh, the ad agency. And so they reference the civil rights or movement. Or the, the elevator workers, yeah. Yeah, and those are even, like, lesser than yeah. in, the, in the show. And so, like, like uh, I, I, Mad Men is one of my favorite shows of all time, but it is a very white show. Uh, and... Uh, I think Mrs. America does a better job of it, but I think it still diminishes the, the, uh, you know, the role of African American women during this time. And I think, I think there's a parallel with modern times where you have, you know, uh, you know, white feminists, both men and women, um, you know, like lacking intersectionality, um, you know, like not realizing that, you know, women of color, uh, queer women of color, trans women of color like this is part of like this is part of our fight this is part of our coalition and we have to be out there to work with them because their rights are our rights and vice versa so um i i just feel like you know uh there's a willingness to like kind of say well this isn't really us and we have to move forward to get what we want like you saw even within the coalition of of black women at at the apartment that you referenced that les- like lesbians aren't part of this, you right. know, uh, or that black women aren't Keep part of this. Keep the lavender menace out of here. <laughs> Basically. That's what, no, it was a line. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, conversely, the way that um, um, Phyllis gets in bed with the kind of the, the racist Southerners yes. by giving them a leadership position uh, highlights her menace. Because and and the the real evil that goes into that process, because what she does is she has her friend Alice first try and bring up the issue with I think her name is Anne Marie or something 
um, this woman who is just happy to talk about from Louisiana, what, right? For, yeah, she's from Louisiana, and she's happy to talk about how men and women are different, just the same as you know whites and blacks are different. And um, Alice, you know, is kind of thrown to the wolves to say like your language is a bit crude. So the woman is storming out, and suddenly Phyllis uh, uh, reveal basically she's betrayed Alice by uh, you know undermining her hmm. and immediately removing the democracy of their system, removing that voting process and just naming who is going to be in charge of different organizations and just crushing her friend by, I think the line was something like, I didn't even realize this was an issue until my dear friend Alice brought it up. So that's sisterhood. And then everyone starts clapping. So I think it, you know, that was a little bit nice, but I definitely would have liked to, there could have probably been an extra episode of material, um, kind of exploring. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree with that. Um, so another theme um, I think is underestimation. Um, so Bella underestimates Nixon. Gloria and Betty underestimate each other. Everyone underestimates Phyllis. Phyllis underestimates the people working for her and the promise of political gain. Are there any ways you feel like this was particularly well executed? Um, is there anything about this that you think is trying to make a point to the story beyond don't underestimate women or your opponents. I mean, I think that, um, I guess part of what was interesting to me, I mean, again, like looking at the story arc is it, while there was this underestimation theme, it seemed like in the moments where your coalition is the strongest the the characters were kind of personally the weakest and in those moments where they're just fighting tooth and nail those characters seem the strongest so in the beginning phyllis is you know really kind of trying to get her spot um she seems very strong you know towards the end she's losing everybody she seems very weak gloria on the opposite end starts off seeming you know kind of demure and um, not really wanting to be the face of this movement that, you know, Betty so wants to be the face of. And by the end, you know, she, you know, is, is very much standing tall, very much sticks up for what she wants, um, you know, while her movement is falling apart. Yeah. Caitlin, do you have any thoughts on that? Or is it a theme you weren't really interested in? No, no, it was. Um, it's funny you bring up, uh, you know, Bella underestimating Nixon. Again, I think it's a, sort of a, you sort of see it sometimes in biopics uh, and like uh, stories sort of set in the past, the sort of anachronism of like, Oh, isn't that funny that like, you know, they underestimated this or they made yeah. some comment that was ironic. It's like Humphreys like, wins. Or yeah. Basically. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, Oh yeah. This is our, ch-. like she says, I think at the convention, you know, like we're going to beat Nixon at this point. And like, you know, it's one of like the biggest blowouts, you know, in the electoral college and in presidential elections in the last, you know, 50 60 years uh i was just like all right yeah i get it wink wink nod nod um but i do think the uh um generally the theme of the pro era movement underestimating what shaftley was able to do because you know they got the era passed out of both chambers of congress they were getting close to all the state legislatures they were like three state legislatures of away from getting the amendment ratified and then, I mean, like, like the Eagle Forum and all their allies just like they held their own. And um, I think it's an important lesson for people to take that, you know, just because, as I said early on in this podcast, just because you think you're right doesn't mean you're going to win. Yeah. Like, uh, like these kinds of things take real organization. Uh, they take real time. They take real energy. I mean, like, think about, like, like in the last 10 years, you know, where we've had um, just these awful, like, massacres as a result of people having guns, like Sandy Hook, and, like, after that, where, like, you see poll after poll that shows that the majority of Americans believe in real, like, gun control reform. Uh, but there's a reason why, for a long time, the NRA, like, you know, they outmaneuvered the uh, gun control uh, coalition is because they were better organized 
their supporters, while they're the minority, were much more passionate and in some cases were like single issue voters. And so they like did everything they could, whereas, you know, the folks on the other side were a little bit more disorganized and they um, and I know I know people who worked in this movement, so I'm not trying to disparage what they've done. It's just like it takes a lot of work beyond just sort of public opinion being on your side. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that that's an interesting point. It also has some good parallels to the Clinton campaign. You know, yeah. that was a campaign that took for granted. We yeah. are right. We will win. Nothing can stop us. And look yeah. where we are. <laughs> the arrogance, the inevitability. There's no way that we could lose to this, this guy. And, you know, and I, I have a lot of friends that worked in the Clinton campaign, and I don't want to disparage the work they did because they, it's hard work working on a campaign. Uh, but, you know, clearly there were, you know, there was soft underbellies in that campaign, and the Trump campaign was able to, you know, take advantage of that in 2016. To me, the, the theme of underestimation um, is part of, I think, one of the subtle things the show does, which is focus on the, is this word, cyclicality? how cyclical things are. Um, I thought that, you know, along with all the themes about like, you know, Nixon's going to lose, Trump is going to lose that kind of stuff. But um, having showing kind of cameos of people like Karl Rove or Paul Manafort and Roger Stone or, you know, whomever that part of what they're doing is showing this you guys think that you're the end, that this is a this is a thing that's going to stop. But there is going to be history that is just going to repeat itself very shortly after. Yeah. And the people you see now, you should treat them as seriously as you're treating your current opponents. Yeah. Like, um, so uh, in the last little bit, I thought it might be good to talk a little bit about the fashion of the show and the humor. Um, were there any, did you have any thoughts on the outfits? Were there any that particularly struck you? Anytime Gloria Steinem just came on, I was like, we stand. Yeah. Just, she looks so <laughs> fucking cool. I love that she just kind of had like wiry hair all the time. And her yeah. glasses were part of her like entire, like they were in her hair yeah. on her face. It's, it's just an extension of her. Yeah. I definitely walked away going, I need blue tinted aviators. For sure. <laughs> Bella's hat. Oh, I love oh, that. Just she could wear a hat. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the show was, um, I don't remember what it was, but like she comes in the room and she says, I've always heard that like, uh, you know, if you want to be taken seriously, wear a hat and gloves. And then somebody says, Bella, when did the gloves come off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she had, okay. So she had one of my favorite lines, which was, um, I think, I think it was the introduction of her character. Um, Someone was asking, are you sure you didn't call the Speaker of the House a four-letter word? She goes, yeah, I'm sure. Ass is a three-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fact that like so many of the main uh, actors had a at least a basis in comedy. Rose Byrne is a very funny. She's hilarious. She's hilarious. She does. She plays the straight woman so well in uh, so or so many films like Bridesmaids, uh, Spy, a lot of like the Paul Feig movies. Yeah. Um, in Margot Martindale, we've talked about her. What a phenomenal actress. Kate Blanchett, like, I mean, she's got wonderful comedic timing. You know, like Tracy Ullman Tracy is Ullman, like yeah. Tracy Ullman is a comedic actress. When, when Gloria and Bella are fighting about whether or not they're going to put abortion on the uh, as they're going to make it an important measure, yeah, Bella Gloria is just like, all right, I'm leaving, and Bella wants her to be one of the delegates that represents uh, their organization. And Bella goes, where are you going? And Gloria's like, I have to go do work. And Bella goes, you have, we haven't voted yet. And Gloria goes, I'm not voting. She just walks out of the room. And then there's a long silence. And Betty Friedan goes, who wants to nominate me? <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. You know, we didn't actually talk about, and I can't remember her name, but she was, um, uh, she was married but ended up having the affair with a woman. Um, oh, yes, yeah. Because there was an entire episode about her, and I loved yeah. I loved her so much. I think her name was Brenda, but uh, I can't remember. I can't remember I can't either. Remember and, like, either. she is based on a real person. And, like, she had one of my favorite moments in the debates when it was her and her husband, who was played by, um, oh, God, what's his name? But he was on the OC. Um, 
gosh, what was his name? Like he was like the kind of like the cute nerdy guy on the oh, OC. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know who you're talking about though. But, I didn't watch the OC. Uh, but how dare you? First of all, man, uh, really great music for that time. Oh, for sure. Oh, uh, why don't you just start listing the hits? <laughs> yeah. And then she's up against uh, Phyllis and her husband, and she keeps saying, "You're not a lawyer." Which Supreme oh, Court yes. case are you citing? Name the case. Name the case. And she just keeps saying over and, and over she ma- and, and over. Phyllis makes up a case and she goes, that's not a case. That's not a real case. Oh, my God. I freaking love that. My- well, and then in the later episode, the Sarah Paulson scene, when she's completely drunk and out of her mind, she just runs into her and is just shouting, name that case, name that case. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> it was a good callback. My, yeah, for my sure. absolute favorite line has to be in the first episode, very early on, where Phyllis is getting her hair done. Her mother's getting her hair done. And her mother shows up and she's got her new haircut. And she's smiling. And, her, and, and Phyllis goes, you hate your haircut. And her mother just smiling through her teeth. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> the timing is so good. Uh, well, because we are a queer podcast, so we got to mention um, Phyllis's oldest son being gay. Yes. Uh, I thought, you know, at first there was like, oh, this is an interesting way to handle it. And then it was sort of just weaved into the show in a very awkward way. Like, it's like you're bringing it up, but you're not really dealing with it. It and then felt like filler. It felt very very much like there are several scenes where they made him uncomfortable by like women being like you should date my daughter i uh uh, sarah paulson's character was like i would love to have a schlafly baby like take it easy alice yeah uh and you know he's clearly uncomfortable by it but it never really went anywhere never went anywhere and you even had the scene when phyllis is in confession because she's a catholic and she goes my son is a pervert i'm like okay what what's what are you doing with this scene now? I mean, is it just something that will, uh, you know, something that will, um, you know, uh, that we'll deal with, but they never really do. I just felt very sort of tacked on and I'm sure it is part of Phyllis's backstory. It just never really went anywhere. I don't know what you think, Sandy. Yeah. I, you know, it's another one of those moments where I was glad that they at least brought it up and acknowledged it. But at the same time, yeah, it really felt like they didn't treat that the way that it could have been treated. Yeah. Um, yeah, on, on, you know, both, uh, you know, from the feminist side and from the Phyllis side, like it felt like they could have, you know, once again, there could have been an episode that was just on the queer characters, um, and really like taken them seriously and given the show from their perspective. And that was really skipped over. I think we got a little bit of that with the, the kind of lesbian storyline and her working with her husband to try and figure out the nature of their relationship. And he's being unreasonably cool about the whole situation um but there wasn't there wasn't enough i would have liked a little bit more yeah i agree i I will say um one fashion thing that i really liked and i only caught upon second uh watch um was shirley chisholm you know she announces she's running for president and the way that they do the announcement is that it's one of phyllis schlafly's um staff members who is doing dishes at the time a black woman and Shirley is wearing a brown fur coat with a blue striped shirt underneath. And the staff worker is wearing a, uh, b- uh, a brown sweater with a blue striped vest. Yeah. And I thought, Oh, that's a very nice, subtle fashion way of trying to show solidarity between the characters and this kind of idea of like hope. There's a possibility like, any person could be the president of the United States. So I have a question for both of you. Um, you know, clearly, uh, I don't want this to turn into like a Ryan Murphy type, you know, true crime story or American horror story, whatever, like with like uh, a uh, anthology, different seasons. Yeah. But clearly, you know, this was about, you know, the ERA and how it didn't succeed uh, by its deadline. Is there another point of whether it could be about, you know, feminism, anti-racism, you know, uh, LGBTQ rights of like an era you would like to see uh, in this sort of like miniseries format? I mean, I think uh, that in this show, that this show is kind of special in that it would actually work if all you did, and I don't know how they would actually advertise it, but all you did was just add extra episodes. So you just continue to flesh out the lives of these other people, like 
when I don't see Shirley, what's going on with her? Or when I don't see Alice, what is, what's her storyline? What's going on? Yeah. And that you just throw it like your second season is just like, let's augment the first. I wasn't thinking about necessarily following these characters. Sure, sure. No, but I, I understand. Yeah, I'm yeah, saying yeah. I think it would be interesting. If oh, you... no. I understand that you understand. Oh, but... do you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is why we are such a good podcast. And yeah. We have all tens of listeners. Yeah. Uh, that's mm, listener. We yeah. have one. Uh, but what about you, Sandy? Is it like an era like you would like to see kind of like um, uh, filmed in this way, like do a miniseries? This is something that I've not actually thought a lot about. Um, I know I'm kind of putting y'all both on the spot. Yeah. So. And my answer was shit. Apparently, so. Oh yeah, awful. It was terrible. <laughs> I mean, I did think that the 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 Shirley Chisholm character could have been its own series. Yeah. Um, that that would have been a, a very interesting series. But as far as ideal time periods and characters, I I don't know that I have one that I could just say off the top of my head. Did you have one, Kaylin? I've got a kind of. Kind of an era that I would like to see, and I don't know if you could like weave in politics, but like maybe how uh, like Bo- the Robert Bork uh, Supreme Court nomination failed in the late eighties, oh, and then how the Clarence Thomas nomination succeeded with Anita Hill and all of that, and I think that would be a really interesting way of like showing the uh, the politics around uh, SCOTUS appointments you know, and everything that goes in there. I think there's some very interesting things that could be done. And you could do like, you know, like you've got like, that's a span of, I would say like four to five years, you know, you would have the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, you know, congressional Democrats, um, you know, uh, why one failed and one, why one succeeded. I think that would be really kind of interesting. Um, And the ramifications of one not getting on and what that did to like sort of coalesce the, uh, the Federalist Society, as one example of like pushing for um, conservative justices, and we've seen like in the last three years of the Trump administration with Mitch McConnell, a Senate Majority Leader, of like how much they have done, how much damage they've done to this country, uh, and that like kind of started because of a reaction to like Bork's nomination failing in the late '80s. You know, they want to remake the uh the courts in the same way that they felt that the liberals remade the courts you know from the like the warren uh the warren court from like you know the the 60s 60s through um the 80s so yeah um so as a last kind of question i will say my worst which is i think that the worst part of this show is the way it treats its ending it makes it seem like Phyllis Schlafly was done and defeated. And while I think as a character arc for a show, that's very nice that, that they then showed that it's been ratified in the three additional States also is warm and feel good, but it does make it feel like it's holding on the it's, this is the part where it's holding on too much to the bio part of the biopic. Yeah. That like, it, it wants to make you feel good for having watched the show. And I think it, it, it whitewashes a lot of very negative things that happen after in order to make a statement that we will always progress. What did you think about the kind of ending? Uh, and how do you feel like, how do you feel you would answer the question? Like when we lose politically, how do we move on? Oh, okay. That's that's a interesting kind of way of looking at it. Um, I, I so I guess I felt about the ending kind of similar. Like I felt like, you know, I went to grad school in St. Louis. The Eagle Forum is right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, it, it's it's something where yeah, I definitely did not feel that she was defeated, and so that kind of felt false. At the same time, though, you know, the ERA still sits in a Senate that Mitch McConnell controls. And even though they've got all of the states, like, it will probably not move still until... Um, if the Senate flips. Right, unless yeah. the Senate flips. Yeah. And so, so I felt like that was an important thing to bring up, that it's taken, you know... Wow, 50 years ago, does it seem that long ago? Like it's taken 50 years to even get to this point and then it's still in jeopardy. Was I, I felt like that was a valid point. Yeah. 
Um, the the other thing that I thought was was kind of interesting was just this idea that, um, as we talked about compromise earlier, the people who had a lot of concessions didn't end up successful. Um, that at the end of the day, while Shirley, you know, didn't get her bid for president, she was the only one that was still standing in office, mm-hmm. which I, I, I thought was an interesting kind of way of ending it, was that she was going to leave by retirement, whereas everybody else was kind of pushed yeah, out. Yeah, Bella didn't make her Senate, like her Senate bid, like she lost that. So. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a really good point. Kayla? Um, you know, again, it's the, it's the, it's the, to your point, it's the bio part of the biopic. It's like every biopic says, and now, like, where is everybody now, like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later? And then they show, like, you know, the ERA, uh, you know, sort of languished until 2017 when, you know, these states passed it. And then Virginia just passed it in 2020. Phyllis Schlafly, you know, one of the last things she did was she made the case for Donald Trump in 2016 right before her death. It's like, it's always the codas that we see in biopics, and it's like, yeah, I guess they're a necessary evil. Like you just sort of see them and you kind of roll your eyes. But like yeah. it is, it is what it is. I don't know. Um, it just made. Um, I don't know. It, 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 I, I do think showing Phyllis at her quote unquote lowest was not accurate because she was a force to be reckoned with through the eighties, nineties, two thousands, and even the early part of like this decade or this most recent decade yeah i mean for the show she's a monster trapped by her own machinations she yeah. is still relegated to housework because of the stuff that she did yeah um but you know that that's not true that's not true she yeah. created a movement that like has lasted for a very long time um with that any final thoughts anything you that wasn't mentioned that you wish it was just a very, very random aside. I don't know if either of you watched Marvelous Ms. Maisel, mm-hmm. but there is an episode where she's, uh, Ms. Maisel is doing advertisement reading um, and she gets a Phyllis Schlafly ad and she ends up quitting the job because she can't handle the idea of speaking for this monster. Is this the most recent season? Uh, I think it, it, I don't know if there's a season that's out in the, like right now but like this season is the one three from, season three i think it's season yeah. three yeah i stopped watching after the second season but because phil schlafly i think got some name recognition when she was pushing for goldwater in 64 and she ran for congress a couple of times and didn't make it so maybe that like kind of times up with like where marvelous miss Maisel like timeline happens it was just one of those moments where it was interesting that you know first of all that phyllis schlafly is this much entering the conversation again that she's at least in name uh, showing up in a couple of different series to me yeah and um you know the idea that you know this show you know gets this you know spectacular actress to play her and you know well in the end i feel that she does come across as a monster there's definitely some questions that i have whereas in the miss mazel version it was very much a unquestionably the world knows phyllis schlafly's a monster you can never ever 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 get close to the idea of repeating any words that she says i, yeah. I felt like as two pop culture moments that those were very interesting and that is interesting and um, well, with that, um, thank you very much, Sandy, for joining our podcast. Uh, Kaylin, thanks for being here. Um, Brent, thank you for being you. Thank you. Uh, this has been our secret records of the Hulu show, Mrs. America. I still highly recommend you watch it. I don't know about you guys, but... I think it's a well-done show. I uh, still stand Kate Blanchett. Uh, bye, everyone, and enjoy whatever you can. <laughs> thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs>